0: My name is Will Small, and I'm trying to become the man my kids need me to be. To my fellow men, I think we've all got some work to do. What if it's time to rebuild what we call manhood for the sake of ourselves and the generation growing up behind us? It's not always easy talking about the real stuff, but we can't afford not to. So let's get into it. This is the Mankind Podcast. How often do you spend time thinking, like seriously thinking, about the future? What is the world going to look like in a decade or two from now? It can be so easy to get caught up in the demands of the moment that we don't necessarily ask where is this all heading and are we making good decisions today for the sake of tomorrow? Damon Gamow is a filmmaker known for his powerful documentaries, That Sugar Film and 2040. In 2040, He imagines what the world will be like for his young daughter when she's in her 20s. To create the film, Damon travelled around the world seeking some of the very best solutions that currently exist to a range of big challenges we face around climate change, energy, transport, agriculture. And he then captures a vision of what the world could look like if these best practice solutions were rolled out in communities across the globe. It is absolutely one of the best docos I've ever seen. Damon's work treads the line between honestly acknowledging very real and complex challenges we face while exploring a deep and robust hope for the future. So I asked Damon to join me in a conversation around a 2040 vision for the themes I generally explore on this podcast. What does a healthy future look like in the areas of gender roles and expectations? And how can we create large-scale change where it's needed? Our chat was both philosophical and practical, Heavy and yet hopeful. And just like watching Damon's films, afterwards I felt inspired about the possibilities. I hope that's how you feel on the other side of this conversation. All right, Damon, so good to be able to sit and have a conversation this morning. Really appreciate your time. I'm a huge fan of your work. I love 2040, and you know, we use your sugar film cookbooks and everything. But this morning I realized, doing a little bit of online searching, that you are responsible for the 2011 Tropfest winner, Animal Beatbox. It's just like taking you to a whole new level in my mind.
1: <laughs> do you know how many people have told me that, that they say, oh, look, we loved your films, and then we realised that you were responsible for that song that echoed around our house constantly, then for some reason I've become a little bit cooler once they learn that. Yeah, do you feel like you peaked in 2011? Some would say yes, I imagine, and others would say absolutely not because I remember just how much lack I got for that film because it it cost me $80 and it was a very simple idea I guess that anyone could have done so I just got absolutely smashed for the next few days because people go how the hell could this film have won but I was there on the night and there was something very I don't know people just went into their little child space for a brief moment and you could tell how enjoyable it was for them so in a lot of ways that was a big catalyst for me seeing a, a large group of people respond to your work in such a lovely way it was a real sort of driver to keep making it and, and and keep trying to bring people joy and teach them something through art and, and and make it entertaining. So yeah, I I um got a lot out of that time.
0: Well I love that man. I love the mix of obviously just creativity and and the joy of that, the childlike sort of wonder of that, but also you create really important work. And I'm obviously joking when I say, did you peak in 2011? Because you continue to make really important, beautiful work that generates significant conversations. And I want to talk about that today, but if somebody hadn't met you before, how do you introduce yourself and describe kind of who you are and what you're doing in the
1: world? I would probably say, yeah, my name's Damon and I'm a father of of two daughters and um, a husband and I try and make the world a better place by using using storytelling to alert, uh, inspire and motivate people into taking action to contribute to a better world. So I really can't stress how important and significant I think storytelling is in terms of its ability to shape culture Mm. uh, and transform human behaviour and it has done that for as long as we've been around and yet in the last 30 to 40 years we've just kind of thought that graphs and data are going to be the thing that convinces us and it's never been that way so I really do think this is a, a moment for all types of storytellers and we actually are all storytellers whether we know it or not we've all got that ability and and that's the way we're going to um, create enormous change so I've experienced that now with obviously two large documentaries and seeing the impact they've had not just at you know school kids and tuck shops or or local communities but even with world leaders or um, leaders of industry that have watched the film and then had really robust conversations afterwards, you, you, you know, our stories can change the unlikeliest of people that you never expect and then and those people have the ability to make huge change and impact um, culture. So, yes, I, I, I do, that's how I describe it. I think I try and raise awareness for people on topics they might not be that um, uh, literate in. Uh, but in a fun and playful way that that allows them to get excited by implementing some of those things they've learned.
0: I absolutely love that, man. And I resonate with much of what you're saying. Stories can change the world. They can change our world and, and mm-hmm. through that they can change the world. So I have a lot of conversations with people about the stories that we grow up with around what it means to be a man mm-hmm. or a boy. Mm-hmm. And um, often those are kind of unconscious stories that we don't notice until we notice. And then you can't really unnotice. But as you think back on growing up, what it was like to be Damon as a kid, as a teenager, 21 year old, what were some of the stories that you felt were in the air around what a man should be? And did you feel that you were in or out of alignment with those?
1: Yeah, I would say I was very much out of alignment. I I spent, I was very anxious as a teenager, incredibly so. And I had a complexity of Largely being raised by my mother with no other siblings, so I had a very dominant matriarchal kind of relationship and then went to an all-boys Jesuit school. Right. <laughs> uh, with predominantly male teachers. I had a foot in the full sports world, if that's what a guy is, and you play sport and you're there's a lot of machismo. But I also enjoyed chess and reading <laughs> and doing drama and I had a whole group of friends in that camp so really felt quite split growing up actually. And I remember even a, in, in being grade 11, one of, the, one of the sort of the more sport people just giving me so much grief because I said, oh, you're just so sensitive, you're crying all the time and i just I'll get over it, you know. So somewhere I, I, I told myself that I wasn't allowed to do that. Like if I was going to make it and, and exist in the world, I had to be strong and I couldn't be vulnerable. And so I spent a lot of my 20s completely masking that part of myself trying to cultivate this version of me that was strong and clever and witty and really sort of just a a very ego driven um, because I was scared of that other part of me that was the daggy playful vulnerable sometimes scared human and it wasn't until I met my wife in when I was in my early 30s and then we we did a sort of did a couple of I read a lot of sort of I guess you'd call them self-help book but whatever you want to call them that sort of opening up to who we are as humans and what makes us tick. And and that's when I really started to accept that other part of me. And in fact, coming full circle there, the 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 Truckfest film and all beatbox, I made that as a my wife and I, we'd only been together for six months and we were doing like a cleanse together and I said, I'm gonna need something to get me through four days of not eating or drinking this benzenite clay nonsense. And so um actually wrote that song and we did the little cutouts together. And then she said, oh, you should enter this in Tropfest. And I just, that, that part of me just shut down that was the cool guy trying to be tough and said, there's no way I'm submitting this daggy, ridiculous song into Tropfest and having these people. A, it will never get in, but B, I'm, that's not you know, who I've spent 15 years trying to refine. That's not the person I want out in the world. And so, you know, in, in a terrific universal twist of fate, it, that I did submit it and then it got into the final and then heaps of people watched it and then it won. So it was almost this kick in the backside that I needed to <laughs> say, actually, this is you and people will respond to you and it's okay. We all, we've always known you were that daggy guy regardless, so stop pretending that you're not. And so that became quite a big sort of turning point, I guess, in my life and um, in terms of accepting that and uh, understanding what, for me, my definition of a man um, was different to, to other people's I sometimes still struggle with it I still get intoxicated that that sort of the the ego can be a very luring beast sometimes and I, I had moments where I, I go back into that but largely I, I feel really proud of the last 10 years in particular and how I father the kids now and all sorts of things I've, I've embraced that part of me a lot more uh, and just accepted that that's who I am. Yeah, that can be transformation. Or as you know, when, when you you do accept the fullness of of who you are, warts and all, dagginess, yeah. whatever it become. Um, People see it anyway, so you may as well just stand in it.
0: Absolutely, man. And it does change, I think, a little bit when you do have little people in your life and you watch how they're growing up and you think a bit more about what were those stories that I internalised as a kid. And I want my kids to be able to be fully themselves, but I struggle still to do that. Um, so it brings up all kinds of interesting questions and, you know, new new thoughts. And I was thinking about, yeah, your situation. Obviously, this film 2040 People should go and watch it right now. If they haven't, stop listening to this, go watch it. But it's built around like questioning what the world will be like for your daughter when she's in her 20s. And uh, I was wondering how much being a dad has kind of impacted the way that you approach your work, the way that you think about the future. Obviously that film is about climate change. It's about our planet. What's the future going to be like and how is that going to impact today? How much do you think being in a fathering role parenting has influenced that kind of work?
1: Yeah I I mean I think massively for me because I especially when you're talking about the future and climate and any type of future really and the multiple pathways that we're facing that until I had children I sort of understood that the the timeline for me probably stops around 2060, 2055. That's really all I need to be concerned about but when you have kids not only does that timeline extend and you suddenly think of the The life of the you know 30 40 years beyond that date but I think what happens too is that there's something about children that that really crack you open and and there's a for me anyway there was a sense of collective parenting that even seeing my my daughter interact with her friends I I felt this sense of responsibility for her generation not not just my own kids and their innocence and so many of the things they're going to walk walk into that are a result of our behaviours, I guess being a parent suddenly that whole generational line and the mythology around that or or what was practised by lots of different cultures really came into the fore for me and and, and it wasn't just about my own children. And so it's the thing that gets me up still every day and, and, you know, probably what I'm the most hopeful about is, is how eloquent and, switched on this generation are even some six seven eight-year-olds mm. with what's happening you know they, they want to know what their careers the future are and they want to know what their careers will be that might help to turn things around on a large or small scale so I just feel like parents teachers have perhaps the biggest responsibility in this moment with everything we're facing is that you know we've got to teach our kids to value nature they do they're born with that it's innate but then the system erodes it from them mm. but if they can if they can understand the magic of it and the interconnected of it and how valuable it is to our own well-being, which a lot of them do, then they will fight for it and want to protect it as they get older and it won't just become an externality like it has for our generation. So uh, I do think that 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 deep education and deep valuing new metaphors that we create for culture have to start with our children and and we're lucky that a lot of them are already halfway there. So I think parents... um, can do more than they realize. They often say to me, what do I do? What do I do? And, and the number one thing I often say is just be be really diligent with how you talk to your children about the natural world and teach them the magic of it. Mm. Get them to value it. Give it significance and meaning. It's probably the most important thing you can do. Then you change their whole framework for what it is as they grow older and, and they have a different respect and, and level of connection. So it's deep work, but it's we're all capable of doing it with, with, with any children that we interact with.
0: What I love about what you just said is that it, It doesn't start with the, the earth is a problem to be solved, but it's actually something to be appreciated and, and, and to be like in, in wonder and awe of, and we start teaching the beautiful story rather than just the problematic side of things, but surely that will lead to an overflow in that area.
1: That's right, mate. And, and, you know. When you do immerse yourself in this space and you you start to see some of the biology that's coming through and what scientists are understanding around nature's interaction and and you know the the eight billion microbes in a healthy uh, teaspoon of soil or the way that trees even send nutrients to each other across species in a forest like there is something magic going on mm. you know? so it's, it's not a big stretch to sell that to kids or, or the bacteria and the hormones that these plants release as we walk through them that are beneficial to our own health or they might make rain, you know, the soil and the, and the plants. Like This stuff's just terrific. And once you really understand that, you, it's like putting a set of glasses on and you can't see the living world in the same way again. And, and it is why, you know, some cultures, even today, the Achua people in, in Ecuador and Peru, they you know, they don't even have a word for nature. They don't think nature exists. They don't see any separation between themselves and the living world around them. So I, I think somewhere we need to move towards that kind of ontology if we're going to pull this thing off again we need a really a re-deification of nature or, 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 or animism concepts again to some capacity so that we we bring back the value and meaning of it um, otherwise if we keep treating it as an externality with no value then we'll keep commodifying it and we'll just keep extracting and I think we all know where that's going to end up
0: mm. So in, in the film Basically, you look at, I think, five different areas, things like, um, you know, transport, energy, agriculture, sort of these significant areas where we're going to need to make adjustments if we're going to, you know, save the planet for future generations, basically. And what you do is you look at those areas, you find what is happening best practice And then you kind of imagine what would it be like if that was rolled out across the globe. And I love that idea that it's stuff that already exists. It's already happening. It's just what if this kind of caught on and and got momentum. And I was thinking, you know, it'd be interesting to have a conversation around if we took that same sort of concept and applied it to some of our big conversations around gender issues and and inequality and all Mm -hmm. sorts of things, right? High rates of domestic violence, you know, high rates of male suicide, still very prevalent misogyny and sexism in our our big systems and in the media and in politics. And, you know, it's huge. It's overwhelming as well. Similarly to the climate stuff, it can feel kind of like just a, a losing battle. But, you know, if we take the 2040 concept of looking forward, trying to find what, what would be amazing if it was rolled out? You know, mm. what do you hope in 2040 the world will be like for your daughter Velvet in terms of <laughs> what it means to be woman or to be whoever she is?
1: Yeah, it's an enormous question and it does warrant an entire film and, and research, but I think what comes to mind when you say that is understanding the complexity of the environment that we're up against and this system that we've designed that really isn't conducive to bring out the best in us and. Whether that's the incredible array of things you can be addicted to from, you know, screens to foods to, you know, alcohol and stimulants, that's a big factor. And, and we know now from the research that the more dopamine released you get, that that can lead to all sorts of feelings of inadequacy and depression. You then try to mix this sort of regressive social media platforms that are anything but social. They're they're gearing us for outrage. They're not bringing us together. They're really polarising and putting us into distinct groups and then the system itself again growth 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 more work work harder cost of living going up wages stagnating like god it is brutal to be a human in this system for the majority of people so that's why i guess in 2040 we posit this idea that you know we can't just tinker around the edges with any of this stuff it, it, it does require a bit of a system overhaul on how we interact and what we incentivize and what behaviors we want to bring out in us because even this sort of rivalrous game theory that we play in capitalism, you know, pushes to the top people that are very good at showing no empathy. And in fact, you get rewarded showing sociopathic tendencies. In fact, you get to be the president, you get to be the CEO. Mm. There's a whole lot in that that we need to sort of unravel if we're going to reach a better 2040 for men, which then also influences how women are treated. But I also hope that by 2040, we, especially for our men, we start to understand the importance of ritual and mm-hmm. rites of passage and acknowledgement of transition from child to man. You know, as has been prevalent in many cultures and still is today, that the West has really lost that concept and we are poorer for it, that we often have these listless, unevolved men that that, that you know, just watch watch question time for for half an hour and 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 see who our leaders are. We're not being led by evolved conscious, strong, powerful men. There's just a bickering and a childlike interaction of people that never got to grow up properly. Mm. And they're our leaders. So I, I think we're really lacking that. We crave it and we see the rise of sort of certain tribal festivals or dance culture or music like that. But I think it's a it's a call to something deeper or the rise of the use of entheogens right now, and this sort of psilocybin resurgence and all this looking for some kind of transcendental experience some kind of glimpse into the mystic is what we're all craving right now because religions largely let us down now liberalism and, and free markets is kind of failing not enough people are happy they go hang on that was a bit of a trick we're looking for deeper meaning we have a meaning crisis right now so i think the the way we get to a of 2040 is to develop more cultural practices around that um for men and women, but especially men, I think, we we need outlets. We need to be confronted by things to evolve and and move forward. Lots of things need to happen at the same time, Um, but I do think that a simple step of unravelling some of the complexity of what we've created in terms of environment for ourselves and how we live in it, even pulling back some of those, which we did see glimpses of in COVID, you know, despite everything that went on. You know, if you talk to people a year ago today, A lot of people, the ones that weren't dealing with family deaths or whatnot, were were kind of enjoying the slight ratcheting down of the intensity of the system Mm. um, and found themselves in a slightly better place. Not everyone, and we know there were some really bad stories as well, but I think we all intuitively feel that we can't keep operating at this pace, Mm. and certainly the planet can't, but our own wellbeing can't. And so um, I think that's going to have to play a big role If we're going to have uh, a better world for my daughter in 2040 where she feels safe and people are happier and they're not working as hard one of the things i
0: think that really stands out to me in the way that you just you know kind of unpack some of that is we often just tinker around the edges when we're looking for solutions and we just often think that if we change this little surface level behavior or you know we use a different word or you know we just tell people just to behave better it's going to fix things and, and really what you're highlighting is everything is interwoven and interconnected and that's part of what is the magic of the natural world or the environment is that deep interwoven, interconnected nature of everything. And so when I have these conversations around gender, I'm often very conscious that it can easily become well, we're talking about men's issues or we're talking about women's issues or we're talking about this isolated thing over here and actually it's all so interconnected the fact that men struggle to speak about their emotions because they've had experiences like you as a young guy who, you know, got told you're crying too much or whatever is so obviously interwoven with the way that we treat women. And then like it just, it's, it's all interconnected. And so we need more than to tinker around the edges. We need to actually do deep work. And maybe that partly comes down to, again, what you said at the beginning around recapturing a sense of the wonder and the the beauty of things to actually approach yeah. like the human, you know, there's a lot of mystery to us, even when it comes to matters of gender. And if we were just approached the whole thing with curiosity and to ask questions around yeah. how do we work and what are we at our best and what is within yeah, I think,
1: us? Um, yeah, you make a great point. And I, I've, I've often thought about maybe this the next project to be called flawed architecture and it'll really look at the, the engines and the drivers of income inequality and gender inequality and fractured democracy and climate change and show how they're all connected, they all come back down to this this engine that's driving it. And as I've sort of researched more and more into this, that it it feels like one of the the obvious things we can do to, to start is that right now so much of our, like our taxes that we pay don't actually support the small scale and the human and the nuanced and the things we value like environment and democracy The majority of our money is going to fund this expansion and we subsidise huge corporations and we don't let them pay taxes while at the same time we overly regulate and overly tax the small scale. And just how perverse that is, that nature itself thrives on biodiversity and intricate, nuanced complexity of small scale and yet we have created these monocultures around the world, not just in our food where we wipe down a whole forest, interconnected forest, and we replace it with one crop of mm. soy or wheat. But we've done it in our music. We've done it in our much of our art, even our corporations, our big media entities, our big tech, big ag, big oil, all these things are monocultured where a few people are owning the entire industry. But that is the opposite way to life. So we've created a system that is actually completely at loggerheads with what the world is and our own complexity. So whatever we build next over the next 100 years, I hope that what we start to do is reverse those cogs so that we we stop incentivizing the big and the global and we re-regulate them and we rebuild and we free up the local. Because anyone I speak to, and I'm doing this project at the moment called Regenerating Australia, and we interviewed thousands of Australians around the country over the last year, And the number one word that came up was community. Like we 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 are sick of our kids having to leave our community because they can't work here. So that has an impact on the family dynamic and fragments it. Our decisions about the nuanced complexity of our region are being made by someone in Canberra or some transnational corporation that doesn't understand the subtleties of our region. So I hope that during COVID we've seen the the inadequacies of a global system to, to many degrees, that we've, we've wired this system so tightly for efficiency to maximise every dollar, but there's no slack in it. <laughs> when something goes wrong, it falls apart. So we saw supply chains getting affected, like crops in the Middle East and in Africa couldn't get pesticides because of the supply chain breaking down, or medications couldn't get through to people, manufacturing, energy cut off. It's not a world that's, that's built for what we're going to face. Mm. That system doesn't suit a 21st century that's going to have more climate shocks and more pandemics. We have to find a way of building more energy and food and manufacturing sovereignty without tipping into nationalism. That's not this conversation. It's just saying people want that. They want to feel more secure in their region with their food and their other supplies. So we've got an opportunity to reverse those cogs in the next few years. And I think that's not a radical conversation anymore. I think Mm. people are more open to it than they've ever been because the global experiment, yeah, it's brought benefits, but wow, it's just sent a lot of wealth to a very small amount of people. And it's disempowered the majority of humans around the planet, which um, which is not a functioning system.
0: I just feel there's so many parallels between, you know, this environmental conversation and this human conversation and the gender stuff. Like I'm thinking even around the emphasis on diversity, nuance and local, you know, expressions as opposed to, hey, we've kind of monocropped gender roles. Like here's, yeah. here's the man crop, here's what you're supposed to look like, here's oh. what you're supposed to behave, be like this. We've done the same thing with women. <laughs> it's like actually, no, if it were to be a beautiful forest where there's diverse expressions, there's all kind of stuff that doesn't fit into one of two categories or whatever. And you mm. see some of that emerging and, and, you know, it gives me hope. And that's probably the thing I, I really appreciated about 2040 was I came away from watching it with a sense of renewed hope and it's so optimistic even though it's dealing with such heavy conversations and I kind of hear in you the drive that is driven by obviously the gravity and the weight of what we have to, to kind of wrestle with but also like there's a beautiful vision in there, there's a big seed of hope. I just wondered like how do you maintain the hope in the midst of such weighty, overwhelming conversations? How do you not just sort of give up when it seems too much?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's important to stress that there's a, there's a difference between having hope and trying to be the hope. So having hope, I feel it's quite disengaging. It's like, yeah, we can all have hope. Mm-hmm. But what we need more people to do in this moment is to be the, be the hope and, and find their own agency and their way to contribute, whether it's storytelling, sharing information, whatever it is that lights you up, it's, it's finding that aspect. And I guess what surprised me over the last six years, especially working in this film, is just how, how it's transformed my life in terms of my interactions who I've been able to meet, how I talk to my own family, but also how joyous it's been to spend time in this space. And I'm very careful that I'm not Pollyanna about it. I, I understand the, the, the reality of what we're facing and, and have days where I cry and have days where I feel the loss of of what we can't undo. Yeah. And and I think I wish more scientists would do that because, we need to humanize this topic far more than we have been it 's kind of got stuck or encased in a either a scientific rhetoric or a political rhetoric and that 's not how we move people we 've got to use emotions and be human and we haven't addressed this as a human problem we've we've largely just talked about it as a science problem but it isn't it's a the most complex technology we have to to, to move here is not a solar panel or a lithium battery it's actually our own minds and our hearts that's Mm. that's the great challenge and yet humans (laughs) have largely been ignored in these discussions so what gives me hope is every day being sent or seeing or having a conversation with just some extraordinary human or community or even organization now that are that are doing such meaningful work and legitimately that I feel that we're not far away from a tipping point that, that there's just so much going on especially when you're looking for it and if you're not looking for it you can feel it's very hopeless because none of our mainstream narratives talk about this anywhere near enough and if they do it comes with an absolute coating of apocalyptic you know icing on it it's what Rebecca Solnit used to talk about the hope in the dark that that, that if you go beyond the main stage and the bright spotlight where everyone's looking that's not where the hope lies it's in the shadows to the side of the stage where people are just getting on with it in their own community or in their own school or whatnot and that that is now happening at an extraordinary level that, you know, change is never linear. It's never been linear. There's always been a, a build-up and a momentum and then at some random moment the dam wall breaks and the change starts to happen and, and that happened with the suffragettes, That happened with the abolitionists, human rights, you know, Rosa Parks on the bus. Who would have thought that would be the moment? But it wasn't about that moment. It was about all the momentum that had built up behind that for that mm. to be the catalyst. Um, and I think the same is happening in, in this sort of space now. So that gives me huge hope. Uh, I read Viktor Frankl's book, which you might have read, Man's Search for Meaning, which is, you know, his experiences in a concentration camp and, and how important hope is to people. That's what gets us up every day. And he noticed that in the prisoners there, that the ones that genuinely believed they could get through were the ones that did get through. Uh, and it's the same with this Admiral Stockdale in Vietnam, who was the Stockdale Paradox. It's called where... He dealt with these prisoners of war, and the ones that were negative died very quickly. Even the ones that were optimistic died, because they'd often think, "Oh, I'm going to get released by Christmas," mm. and then Christmas would come and go, and they their hopes would fade, and they they'd pass away. It was the ones that absolutely faced the reality of their situation, and didn't shy away from that. And it's the same in, in in our in our case. Read the data, see how much the ice is melting, see what we're doing to the animal species, and feel that at all its depth but then cultivate a sense of radical hope or or this idea that, yeah, but I do believe in humans and I do believe in our creativity and ingenuity. When enough of us understand the reality of what's going on, we'll turn it around very quickly. And that's what I think we're close to the tipping point, even since the fires in Australia, the amount of money, creativity, invention that's going in now to these kind of solutions and new systems thinking, so not just sort of, Tech utopia is going to save us. But the amount of conversations I've been privy to of people discussing what a new economic system looks like or or how do we transition. I mean, some of the smartest brains in the world are having those conversations or or building new social platforms. We're releasing one in in September with some people we work with in Israel and America. And it's just so exciting. Even if it just shows people that it can be done differently and it's designed to collaborate and connect people to action and teach them and join up in groups of like-minded people. You know, there's nothing divisive about it. The whole thing is engineered for collaboration instead of tribalism. So that's what I remain hopeful about. Um,
0: Oh, that's good stuff, man.
1: Yeah, and I don't don't really feel there's a choice. I mean, what is the option? That you go, it's too hard, we're doomed. And I will say for people that might be listening and not realise it, but that is also a narrative that is being perpetuated right now by the fossil fuel industry. They understand that if they can get people to feel a bit nihilistic, it'll shut them down. They won't take action and engage. They'll just happily pop some more opioids and watch Netflix for days on end and not get engaged because it all feels impossible and too hard. So mm. just a- be very Eat, drink and be
0: merry for tomorrow That's we it. die.
1: And so that is a, a, a cultivated social norm as well, you know, um, and so let's, let's be very savvy to that as well because it's, it's destructive.
0: There's a guy named Dr. Henry Cloud. And he, he wrote a book called Integrity and he's, you know, one of the key ideas is that reality is always your friend. That's exactly what you were just talking about. If you look at the grim reality, you look at the actual stuff, that is the starting point of being able to go, okay, how do we tap into our great creativity and resourcefulness and human spirit in the face of this reality? So hope is not a blind, you know, shallow optimism. It's actually got to be built within the, the very deep fabric of our situation, And I love that image of the, you don't look to the spotlight, look for the little lights, you know, people getting on with it around the place. I recently visited here on the Central Coast, a place called Full Circle Farm, which is a regenerative, you know, farm here as part of the Central Coast Harvest Festival. And it was amazing. You know, it's just a small little local operation, but It was one of those conversations that I guess you've been privileged to have many of those conversations where you see something, you hear something that demonstrates a different way is possible and people are just getting on with it and you can participate. You can be a part of that. You know, if you're listening to this, you can actually find where that's happening around you and get involved in just simple, small ways. I guess part of what we've kind of like the tension we've tapped into is that we want whole systems to change. We need whole systems to change, but that only happens at an individual level. And yet, as, as an individual, you can't change a whole system, but you can be part of that build-up of momentum. But what would you say, Damon, to individuals listening to this about how they can participate in creating change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes when we talk about what you can do in like a climate sense or making a difference, you know, people say eat less meat or ride your bike to work or whatever, and we think of it as, well, that's going to require 8 billion people to do that and I'm not sure that I've, my little difference is going to matter. But I think what gets lost in that is that it's not about all those actions adding up. That, that is a part of it. We're such social animals that it's the signals that we send to each other about what the new behaviours are. So there's really interesting studies where if someone, you and I are in a room together and there's a fire that starts and I quickly grab a bucket of water and put it out, you are almost guaranteed to also grab a bucket and help me put it out that also correlates to people that might get solar panels on their roof. Studies show that the chance of the neighbour then putting solar panels up goes up exponentially because somewhere we kind of all know it's the right thing to do. And so we're constantly sending these little cues that make it acceptable and encourage people to change. So this is why I would say talking about this stuff has never been more important. Being the bold one to start a conversation, even in a difficult scenario with friends or family, it's not about coming in with a an aggressive activist sort of energy it's sharing from a depth and a and a deep listening place and an authenticity of something that means something to you and that then becomes um an allowance or a ticket for someone else to have that conversation with someone else because you've shown them how it can be done and the benefits of that so i think that's almost as important as any physical action you might take whether it's you know getting an electric car or all those sort of aspects i think it's the the deeper shift that's required right now and the bravery that all of us need to have um, in how we share, friends, family, even social media, that collective hive mind that we're putting out there, what stories are you telling? Are you perpetuating the doom and gloom narrative? Are you focusing on solutions? Are you being divisive? Or are you trying to bring people together in a meaningful conversation? Whatever it might be, that stuff's never been more important because, as you said, we're not going to regenerate our eco or social systems unless we regenerate ourselves and how we're interacting with with each other and I know that can sound like a cliche but it really isn't it some people find it so hard from my experience to to talk to family and friends about this stuff it's really confronting so that's requiring bravery and and I think it's also like I said about being strategic with how you bring the topic up and you know it's not about going straight in and talking about climate change don't even have to say those words anymore you can talk about soil health and what that means to your own gut health. You know, you can talk about empowering girls and women um, without even talking about the benefits that would have to our resource use and climate change. Like there, there are ways and strategies of having these conversations now. And that's how we create new social norms and new acceptable languages and behaviours. It's mm,
0: good stuff. And, and a reminder that we're part of a social web and it's not just about your little individual commute to work on your bike or whatever, but it's actually everything you do is part of that network that you're a part of. And the little things you do have the power to shift what happens to the left and right of you. And then what happens to the left and right of those people and it continues.
1: Yeah. I often think even when you're you ordering a food, you know, don't be afraid to say to the waitress or waiter, you know, hey, do you know where this, you know, where was this meat sauce from or where do you get your veggies? Like, just being that person who asked that question does something to that waiter's brain. Yeah. <laughs> and they then go, oh, it's a good question. Maybe I should reason. You know, y- you can never underestimate what ripple effect a simple question or a statement can have and who that will get passed on to and who, whose father that or mother that waiter might be, who they then ask that question. and they, You know, like it just that's how we create change. But if we're mm. not talking about it, then that's never going to reach those people. So it, yep. it's more important than you think
0: hey man if TikTok videos about whatever random stuff can go viral then i'm pretty sure we can we can make some of these conversations spread all right it's been an awesome chat to you i want to just finish off with a few rapid fire questions just some kind of single word or single sentence answers if you're (laughs) Uh cool for that
1: yeah i am sure
0: all right first do you have like one essential part of your daily routine that's really important for keeping you healthy.
1: Uh, yes, but I fluctuate on it. Sometimes I'm, I'm still learning to to prioritise it. I still get caught up in the busyness and the overwork element. That's, that's some of my big life lesson, I think. But when it's working, it's largely breathing. It's sort of being really conscious of my breath and breathing out things that I don't want anymore and then breathing in this big, beautiful, powerful energy that the The surrounds provide and when I do that regularly I'm a different person Mm. so as something as simple as that for me can make a massive difference and mean I'm less reactive I'm a much better person to be around than when I'm in you know nervous system override hijack busy mode different human
0: I can definitely relate to that what is a single sentence that you would want to now say to your 18 year old self if you could have a chat with him you are enough awesome And if your 80-year-old self was to join our little call here and he had one sentence for you, what would you want it to be?
1: (laughs) Um, Enjoy it more, revel in it and be grateful for this extraordinary life that you have. Good words to hear.
0: All right, for people listening to this, what's your like one most pressing book, film, podcast recommendation that you just think everyone should go and check out?
1: Gosh, it's hard to narrow it down to one. I'm really, I'm not sure if you've come across a guy, he's an American thinker named Daniel Schmachtenberger. No. He does, um, he's got an incredible brain. It takes a while to, he speaks in his own language and whatnot, but he's very much into civilization, risks, opportunities, rebuilds, new systems, and he's really out there on the edge of, of what is capable, and he's done a, if you have a listen to a series called "The War on Sense Making," and that's uh, with something called Rebel Wisdom. That's a, a podcast, Rebel Wisdom, and uh, it's the war on sense making. And his his work is is trying to find ways that we can come together um, to solve some of our biggest challenges. And uh, it's called the Consilience Project of trying to actually, on all sides of politics, try and find the truth amongst all the narratives that are flying around. So I, I would recommend giving him a go and sticking with him because once you understand and get used to his code and language, it's it's quite profound, some of the things he talks about.
0: I'll check it out. Sounds good. Uh, What is like one characteristic you would most want to be known for as a man?
1: Authentic, yeah, vulnerable, playful. Yeah, that's three, but I'd like all three of those. I
0: I will give you permission for all three. (laughs) Uh, All right. I want you to finish these two sentences for me. whatever comes to mind first one is I am
1: I am a human navigating his way through an increasingly complex world I am fallible and I am always willing to learn more and we are we are on an incredibly exciting journey to transform our civilization from an industrial one to an ecological one over the next hundred years and we should all be thrilled that we're alive at the beginning of this journey.
0: Awesome. Well, so good chatting, Damon. I'm, I'm taking heaps out of it. I'm sure that other people will listen to this and, and be inspired, and it'll have that ripple effect. People can obviously connect with your work in a range of places, but do you want to just give any kind of website recommendations or places where people can follow along with what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I suppose if you're interested in the sort of the ecological space, check out the. Um, What's your 2040.com, and, and there's a button there that says Activate Your Plan, and we ask you some questions about what you're interested in and how much time you have, and it's sort of structured to to your own passions and, and things you you resonate with. So that'll offer you up six or seven things that you can do to help get involved. Um, there's a pretty active sort of social media group there too. They they sort of get together and arrange. Tree plantings and we, we're about to do a, a big uh, platypus search because they're now threatened. We're about to do this big, we think will be the biggest citizen science project in the world of getting people to go out with their kids and collect water samples from different rivers in their area and then send them into us and we've got a team of scientists that are going to analyse that and give us some really good data about where the platypus are. Or yeah, usual social media stuff. I often post little videos that I make about my thoughts or whatever, so that's just the usual you know, Instagram, Twitter, all those kind of things. But um, yeah.
0: Awesome, man. Thanks again so much. Been great.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Will. And keep up the great work as well. Thank you for what you do.
0: Thank you. This podcast has been proudly brought to you by the Central Coast Council and produced by Lead by Story. Music is by Josh Corkill with editing and mixing from Rowan Parry. I'm your host, Will Small. If you got value out of this conversation, then give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with someone you think would benefit from it. We get to decide what it means to be a man in the places we find ourselves. So let's make it kind, compassionate and strong. Catch you next time on Mankind.